Ladies and gentlemen, author, activist, orator, uh, responsible for books like Jewels and Ashes, Cafe of Scheherazade, Scraps of Evidence, and his latest, Violin Lessons, one of the great characters of Melbourne. Please take it to 9.5 for Arnold Zabel. I'm going to hire you. <laughs> this is great. Uh, and I'm going to start wearing purple suits. Uh, look, it's a, a privilege to deliver this lecture. I've actually written it out. Um, I don't know whether uh, I'm losing my nerve or something, but lately I've been taking to writing uh, these sorts of talks. And the reason, I think, is because really I want to craft something that's got meaning and that weaves in a number of threads. So bear with me, I'm going to actually read this. Um, it's a privilege to be invited to deliver the inaugural UNESCO City of Literature Oration, coinciding with the opening of this beautiful new library. There is a natural fit between the two. Libraries are a key part of the equation. Custodians of the word in a city now recognised for its celebration of language and words. For millennia, the words heard in this area were in the Wirrarung language, spoken by people now often referred to by one of the group's clan names, Wurundjeri. There are also words spoken in the language of the Boon A good proportion of the two languages overlap. This very place where the new library stands is more or less on the overlapping boundary between the Wurundjeri, the river people, and the Boonwara, the people of the coast. In this there is a mystery. I grew up in this city as a son of immigrants who finally settled here in 1948. In 12 years of schooling, in four years as a student of history at Melbourne University, 16 years of education in Melbourne, not once did I hear the word Wewara, not once did I hear the word Boonwara, or not once did I hear the word the confederacy to which these groups uh, belong. Isn't that incredible? If you think about it, that's quite extraordinary. So back in the 1960s, I did a, a workshop run by Kuri Elder Jim Berg. Jim Berg was chairman of the Kuri Heritage Trust. <clears throat> and he had an exhibition that told the history of uh, Aboriginal people here in Victoria from an Aboriginal perspective. And as I was going through this exhibition, I came upon a map and this map was a map of Victoria, and it was actually called the Massacre Map. And there were 60 sites marked where various massacres had taken place. And underneath was said, uh, there was a caption reading, many more died beyond prying eyes. So for me, this was a kind of revelation. So I said to, um, uh, to Jim, uh, where can I find out more? And he said, go and meet Arnie Joy. So, um, I drove up to uh, to Hillsville and to this Riddermore house at the foot of the Great Dividing Range and knocked on the door and Joy answered and I was welcomed into 40,000 years of history. And Joy, by the way, is going to be at the MCG this afternoon introducing the, um, the Dreamtime uh, match between Richmond and Essendon. Joy's grandfather was the nephew of William Barrett, 
the last traditional clan leader, Nalan Gaita of the Wurundjeri. In 1835, as a 12-year-old boy, Barak was said to, be, to have been present when John Batman signed the so-called Treaty with Elders of the Kulin Nation, a contentious land use agreement that would profoundly affect the fate of his people. Joy Wanda Murphy and other Wurundjeri leaders then took me on this amazing journey. They took me around to uh, places like Corondurk, that remarkable agricultural station um, up near Hillsville, uh, where the Victorian Aboriginal tribes assembled in the late uh, 19th century. She took me to uh, Mount William, where there's a greenstone quarry, and there they traded with the surrounding groups as far as uh, the area we call New South Wales. And she also took me to various places on the uh, Yarra River, which the Wurundjeri called Birrarung, River of Mists. And I also learned a lot about the Boonwurrung uh, coastal people uh, uh, through guidance by elders such as Caroline Briggs. And this journey has profoundly transformed and expanded the way I view the land on which Melbourne now stands. As I move around the city, I know the ancient maps, the original boundaries, and as a lover of words, I am enriched by the knowledge that the Woiwurrung and Boomerang languages have been spoken here for millennia. These languages were driven underground, but despite efforts to suppress them, they have been saved from extinction. But only just, and much was lost. Women on Corridorg Station played a significant role in the retention of languages. Joy Wanden Murphy, who now teaches Woiwurrung language, has said, the women were very strong about keeping their cultural uh, activities alive. So at night time, my grandmother would call the women inside and they'd all go into a little house to speak the language. The words and phrases that have survived, words retrieved from various lists compiled in the late 19th century and from the various fragments passed down orally through the generations, now form the basis of a revival of Wurrung language. There is now a generation of younger Wurundjeri who are actually creating songs, writing stories uh, in the Wurrung language, and similar things are happening in the Boon Wurrung community. <clears throat> so when I was asked to do this lecture, I thought this is the natural place to begin. Talk about the first people, their languages, and the creativity which is beginning to spring up in those communities. Back in 1997, in the months leading up to the opening of the Victorian Immigration Museum in the old Customs House on Flinders Street, I was asked to write a war essay encapsulating the purpose of the museum and the stories it had to tell. But before I give you the lines with which I begin this 400-word essay, I should say that there's a wonderful Yiddish saying which my mother repeated many times. It rhymes in Yiddish. The Welt is from which means the world is full of little worlds and we're all playing hide-and-seek. <laughs> uh, this saying can be applied to the city of Melbourne. And, uh, and of course, the Wurundjeri and Wurundjeri, those are two of those many worlds, perhaps the, the most important, you could say, of the many worlds within, within our city. But I was given the title Celebration for this 400-word um, uh, uh, war essay. And so each word had to count. I thought about it for a long time. And then the words came to me. It begins, ours is a nation of immigrants and indigenous people, a new world with an ancient past, a grand symphony with many melodies. 
And I think those are the two big stories. These are our two grand narratives, and within these narratives, there are countless stories set in many little worlds. And libraries play a crucial role for writers who pursue these stories, like the documents, the, the uh, novels, the memoirs, the uh, photographs, the collections, all help us track down the stories we want to tell. It was in the State Library of Victoria over two decades ago, inspired by my journey with Arnie Joy, that I researched the life of William Barrick. The library holds many documents associated with Barrick's life, images of his paintings, and information he supplied to anthropologists and others who took an interest in his stories. Barrick was, as Auntie Joy points out, a man of many parts, leader of his people, a skilled diplomat and negotiator, an artist who depicted warrior own life and its ceremonies, a singer, a dancer, and craftsman and a great storyteller. In short, Barak was a man of knowledge and a fighter for social justice. In the 1870s and 1880s, he led three marches, 60 kilometres they marched from um, Correnberg all the way down to uh, Parliament House with petitions. Um, and uh, they were protesting the fact that they were going to close down Correnberg Station. Joy quotes uh, Barak as saying, why do you keep taking things from us? We are dying away by degrees. And they were whittling away uh, that bit of land they still had because it was covered by uh, landowners in the area because it was rich and great, had great potential as pasture. Barrick sadly witnessed the dispossession of his people, the whittling away of their rights, their decimation through imported disease, settler violence, and the heartbreak of losing a way of life and the land that sustained it. Yet he left us the great gift of his stories. So, thankfully, we've got that. Melbourne libraries have played a significant role in my life. The first library was a cupboard of Yiddish books that stood in a secular Yiddish school I attended on Sunday mornings in Drummond Street, North Carlton. Yiddish was my parents' mother tongue, the first of their six languages. My father was a published Yiddish poet in Poland, but he took a 40-year detour as an immigrant worker, labouring in factories and on the Victoria market before he was able, in his years of retirement, to return to his true vocation. The keeper of the cupboard library was the legendary Joseph Gilligich, born in Vilna, the Jerusalem of Lithuania. He also taught in Riga, Latvia, by the shores of the Baltic. He was a follower of the Montessori method and a man of letters whose passion for the Yiddish language was profound. Gilligich was appointed principal of Melbourne's first Yiddish school in 1938. He emigrated from Riga to take up the position and he remained principal until his retirement in 1970. He possessed the gravitas of a patriarch, and he possessed the key to the cupboard. <laughs> I read so voraciously that soon the cupboard was bare. The patriarch then arranged for me to join the elder adult Yiddish library located in a single-fronted cottage in Lytton Street, North Carlton. The Kadima Library, founded in 1911, had its first premises at 59 Bird Street. The library moved in 1915 to larger premises in Grumman Street, Carlton. In 1933, it took up residence in a custom-built cultural centre on Lygon Street. The newly constructed building was to become the cultural hub 
of Melbourne's fledgling Yiddish-speaking community, the home of Yiddish theatre. I used to attend Yiddish theatre there on a Saturday night. With its arched windows, column portal and purpose-built stage, the centre looked like a secular synagogue. And the Yiddish library and community centre was actually a place of continuity. It provided a bridge between the old world and the new for Yiddish-speaking refugees and immigrants. The books were housed in that little cottage next door to the main building. Books lined the passage and the walls of every room. They lay upon tables where readers sat over newspapers and journals and reported from Buenos Aires, Jerusalem, London, Moscow, New York, Paris, the many cities where their people had emigrated. They were keepers of the Yiddish word, and I had become their latest initiate. Far English is the lingua franca of Melbourne, but languages thrive and are reinvigorated in multicultural, multilingual cities such as ours. English was my father's sixth language, and he learned it quickly. In his retirement, he was a regular visitor to the North Carlton Library on Rathbound Street opposite Curtin Square. Who knows it? Anyone here? Good, so you can picture this. <clears throat> Father's favourite books were dictionaries, and he spent hours in the library looking up new words in their origins. He had a great love of the 12 Morton Bay figs that line a path in the square, six abreast on either side of a path. We spent one glorious afternoon at the Carlton Library reading every reference we could about the tree and its origins. Following demographic trends, in 1968, the Library and Cultural Centre shifted to Alstonwick, and in recent decades, it has been looked after by a dedicated group of volunteers who collect, repair, and catalogue the Yiddish books. The books keep coming in legacies bequeathed by a passing generation. Among them are the works of two Melbourne-based Yiddish writers, Pinkus Golter and Herz Bergner, who in the 1930s, through to the 1960s in Bergner's case, published Yiddish novels, essays and short stories depicting the Australian immigrant experience. Golda arrived in Melbourne from the Polish city of Lodge in 1928. For years he worked in a factory by day, dyeing uh, fabrics, and, wrote, and then he'd write late into the night. He knew immigrant life from the coalface and his stories spoke directly to those who read them. Bergner arrived from Warsaw in 1939. He got out of Poland just in time. The first book he wrote in Melbourne, a collection of short stories published in 1941, was aptly called The New House. Bergner also wove Aboriginal characters into his novel Light and Shadow. He was an immigrant writer who settled in the New World but quickly recognised that it was far more ancient than the old. The magnificent Dome Reading Room of the State Library of Victoria is another enduring haunt of mine. Among its countless devotees, there are newly arrived immigrants who spend many hours reading in the new language. They are, as my father was, autodidacts with a love of the written word. Based on the stories I've heard about a previous generation of immigrant autodidacts, the lead character in my novel, Sea of Many Returns, Mentor, spends many hours in the domed reading room in the years after his arrival from the Greek island of Ithaca back in 1917. Based on my wife, Dora's maternal grandfather, the fictional mentor spends every spare hour beneath the dome in between his various jobs as a waiter and chef in city restaurants 
one by fellow Africans learning the new language and pursuing his hunger for knowledge. Today marks the opening of yet another Melbourne Library here in Docklands. The Greater Docklands area is a key world within the many worlds that make up this city. My family's story in Melbourne began in this area when they stepped off the boat onto Station Pier. How many people here have got relatives that stepped off at Station Pier? Yeah. There will always be a few. Um, millions of, of uh, immigrants they've, and, their, and their descendants, they've estimated, have, like my parents, taken their first steps in this city not far from here. Coincidentally, the docks features in one of my current writing projects, the story of the boxer Henry Nissen, who's sitting over there. The legendary Nissen twins, Leon and Henry, were champion Australian fighters in the 1960s and 70s. Henry rose to a top 10 ranking and was for a time the leading contender for the World Flyweight title. The Nissen family also made landfall here in 1949 after a harrowing year spent in war-torn Poland and the Soviet Union and in the Bergen-Belsen Displaced Persons Camp. This is the first time I've publicly read from this manuscript in progress. It's fitting that it's on this occasion. The story begins more or less now, within walking distance of this library. So it's come to this. 66 years old and he labours on the docks. Crop grey white beard, well, it's not so cropped anymore. Xbox has pug nose. He's wiry, rotund, and short. His strength can be sensed rather than seen, belied by age and excess weight. Vigor is the word. Henry Nissen exudes vigor. His life force is strong. It animates his gestures, powers his determined little walk. Thirty years he spent on the streets in support of wayward youth, vouched for them in court, like furniture to their homes accompanying them on their hunt for jobs. He is an alert at all times, a doctor of sorts without a doctor's wage. He's mobile within reach, ever ready for a call from a te pregnant teenager possessed by crack, a family ripping itself apart, a youth on a bender stumbling in the dark. But the meagre wage he, has, he was paid for street work has long run out, so it's labouring here has turned to to make ends meet. He drives to the port in a yellow Hyundai. Victoria docks, Victoria South Wharf, Yarraville docks are all on his beat. Tonight it's Appleton Wharf, the night shift from 11 till dawn. Hired as a general, they call it, a labourer in, la in layman's terms and a casual at that. And he loves it. What choice does he have? He revels in the camaraderie, the company of workmates, and they love him. It's known of an ex-pro who fought some of his most famous bouts not far from here. Two kilometres, give or take. The West Melbourne Stadium, a.k.a. Festival Hall, now rarely used, locked away in industrial streets within walking distance of the port, evoking the ghosts of fights long past, the scent of liniment and sweat in the change rooms beneath the cavernous hall, the long descent to the rink running the gauntlet of the Bay and Crown. So, it's not a secret. Thank you. That's very encouraging. <laughs> it's not a secret. There's something amiss with the Docklands experiment. This area remains somewhat disconnected. 
and in this there is a paradox. There is a, this is a suburb of brand new buildings, luxury high-rises, yet it is located in the oldest part of post-European settlement Melbourne, the first port of coal. And before it, the area was the site of luscious wetlands and a rich source of sustenance for the Boonwurrung and Woiwurrung people. Bricks and mortar provide the structure, but it's community, culture, and a sense of purpose that provide the heart. The Docklands Library can play a seminal role in this. It's through our stories and the sharing of these stories that we bring the city and its countless neighbourhoods alive. For Docklands to thrive, it has to nurture a sense of continuity and a connection to the older parts of the nearby port. There are still pockets of what it was once like, and I'm glad for it. I occasionally meet Henry Nissen in a nearby roadhouse called, called the Port Diner. This is my description. The diner is a low-slung prefab selling basic fare, ham and tree sandwiches, steaks and pastas, chips, potato cakes, donuts, lamingtons and vanilla slices for dessert, instant sugar hits for the road. It's a truckies haven, a wharfies retreat, dwarfed by freeway overpasses, electricity pylons, towering billboards and vast parking bays to accommodate the 24-hour-a-day procession of rigs moving to and from the docks, inconspicuous, easily missed, except for those in the know, the diner stands with a minimum of fuss in a desolate space, a vacant land in no man's land, where the work that keeps the city oiled goes on day and night. Are you tempted to go there? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I tell you what, you're not going to spend as much as you're going to spend at one of the restaurants there. Here. <laughs> Henry Nesson was on the wharves with his workmates back in 1998, protesting the dismissal and lockout of the unionised workforce. I was one of many Melbournians shocked at the image of balaclava-clad men taking over the jobs of stevedores whose families had worked on the docks for generations. I decided to come down to hear the stories of the locked-out workers. I joined them by the fires they lit in 44-gallon drums to keep themselves warm on cold nights protests. To my surprise, Many of the dock workers I met were post-war immigrants who had worked on the wharfs for many decades, chief among them the Maltese. The docks were a melting pot, a coming together of older generations of Aussie working-class stevedores and post-war newcomers. The history of the docks, the struggles of its workforce, and the enduring clash between labour and capital can be discovered in the short stories of Melbourne writer the late John Morrison. Writing 50 years ago, Morrison, who worked on the wars for a decade, depicts, as he said, much of the real drama of the great city. He is one of many writers whose stories map the city and its many little worlds. Just to mention a few, there are Alan Marshall's and Frank Hardy's social realist tales set in the Depression era and beyond, George Johnson's classic My Brother Jack, a bitter tale of suburban malaise, Steve Carroll's intimate explorations of post-war suburbia, Pio, I love Pio, and Pio's uncompromising poetic vision of the immigrant babble that flowed through inner city streets and cafes, Alice Pung's memoirs set in the Cambodian and Vietnamese communities in the western suburbs, 
Tony Birch's short story set of historians and on the banks of the Yarra, Uyong Yu's reflections upon the struggles of present-day Chinese immigrants and sojourners, Christus Cholkus's novels that range across the city and its northern suburbs, and Peter Temple's and Shane Maloney's textured Melbourne-based crime novels. The work of these writers and many others are succinctly evoked in John McLaren's recently published book, Melbourne, City of Words. The opening of this library and community hub is vital to the well-being of Docklands and can play a significant part in the evolution of Melbourne as a city of literature. This new suburb will thrive only, as I've said, it's connected in some way to its history, to the living knowledge of what came before and the years of labour and capital that made it. Otherwise, it will remain strangely disconnected. As I have said, brick and mortar provide the structure, but it's community, culture, and a sense of purpose that provide the heart, and above all, our stories, and the sharing of these stories. At their best, libraries are community-based cultural centres that act as keepers of the word, guardians of the book, and as nurturers of stories. In this role, they are, as I've said, the beating heart of the city. I end with a scene from the draft manuscript. Set in the greater Docklands area, <clears throat> in the here and now, just beyond the Ferris wheel, that can be so clearly seen from the windows <coughs> of this impressive new building. A scene set on the walls that connect the new Dockland with the old. And it could be a scene that will take place tonight, if Henry gets the call. <laughs> you know, at four o'clock, he finds out whether he's on the night shift. So this could be the scene tonight. Uh, and I end with this, uh, uh, this extract from this work in progress. Here's the routine. Nissen arrives at the wharves in his yellow Hyundai. He's dressed in his work clothes, a fluoro jacket with horizontal, horizontal stripes, blue overalls, steel-capped boots, and a yellow hard hat to top it off. He pulls up in the worker's car park and retrieves his kit from the boot. He proceeds to security the gatehouse by the barbed cyclone fence, has a chat to the officer on duty as he signs in and receives his pass. Small talk, big talk. It's all the same. He knows them all. The customs officers, the security staff, the stevedores who have finished their shifts and those who are signing on for the next. And they know him, know he can be relied upon and that he bears no one any ill will. Know he's up for a joke, a bit of a ribbing, a yarn in the mess hall. He makes his way from the gatehouse to D-Shed, a cavernous storage hall. The concrete floor is filled with imported cars, jeeps, tractors and four-wheel drives, lined up side by side. All is orderly and clean. The floor swept, the chains and hooks stored in steel bins. By the wall stands a row of forklifts waiting the next shift. Tarpaulins and cables are on hand, neatly stacked. The goods are easily accessed, amply spaced. The paint sparkles, the packaging is secure and tight. There's been a company takeover of late and the enterprise is in new hands. What does it matter as long as there's work? Henry climbs the steel steps to the upper landing and makes his way into the mess hall. They call it the toolbox, this pre-work drill. The gang is ready and waiting. The supervisor issues instructions. The foreman allocates individual tasks. Then it's out to the boat. 
could be a best straight trader, a tanker, a cargo ship anchoring in mainland ports, could be an ocean-going freighter from some far-flung corner of the globe. Henry descends into the hatch. He is a minute Jonah eating the belly of the whale. The jaw is yawning open, and from it there emerges a flotilla of cars driven by members of the gang. The polished Yuko's glimpingly lamps mounted on steel pylons augmented by lights from the boat. Tonight, Henry is one of the drivers, delivering the vehicles to the shed and further afield to an outdoor lot. The men return to the boat for the next run. Viewed from a distance, the procession of cars resembles a file of ants. It's the best of times, the dead of night. All is reduced to the sound of work, the rumble of trucks, the shrieks of seagulls perched on the rings and sheds, the murmur of water lapping against the wharf. Pause for a breather. Observe the inner city lights. An arc of blue and white lamps straddles the bolty bridge, casting reflections on the water beneath. Grain silos project silver silhouettes from neighbouring wharves. Trains depart from the terminus, trailing containers like ghost riders in the dark. Over at Patrick's Wharf, mobile straddles motor to and from the boats. Stretch your arms. Grab a coffee. Follow your frosted breath as you breathe out. Allow the breeze flaring up from the river to caress your cheeks. Look about you and through the cyclone fence at the adjoining wharf. Just beyond rises the new city, Docklands, an anonymous enclave of high rises. But on the walls, all is as it has always been, albeit a little tidier, more mechanised, yet still reliant on labour and physical force. Rest for a while in the fulcrum, here where city meets river, within easy reach of the port. Observe the midnight party boats passing by. The revelers' laughter evaporates into the night. The stars and planets are all but extinguished in a halo of city lights. Since the vastness of the metropolis unraveling in the dark, register its pulse. Step back and take in the river, the full extent of it stretching beyond sight. The city is a distorted reflection rippling across its width and length. Allow it to lull you into a reverie. <coughs> Enjoy the break. Thank you.